Luke 15, verses 8 to 10. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray. Father, this passage is in this Bible for this church, for this day. And the people that are here are here by divine providence. This is a passage for Christians so that our faith, hope, and love could be nurtured and strengthened in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is a passage for unbelievers, those who are not yet Christian, who are present with us today, that they could recognize they are the lost coin. God is a searching and seeking Savior. May today be the day that they hear the voice and be saved. Give us ears to hear, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Sam Nasser of Bayview Glen Church in Toronto was preaching to an Iranian congregation in their native language in the summer of 2004. And he noticed that when he was up to preach, there was a woman on her cell phone as he was preaching. Well, that kind of got under his skin, but he gave her the benefit of the doubt. Well, the next week, she was on her cell phone again. And then the following week, it had become a regular pattern. So he decided he was going to confront the woman. And so he went to her and he said, "Uh, Why are you on your cell phone when I'm preaching every week? And she responded, Pastor, I already told you. My husband in Iran is very interested in how I became a Christian because of listening to you. Well, that didn't explain why she was on her cell phone. And so he asked for clarity. And here's what she said. I bought a a calling card. And I call my husband in Tehran so he can hear you preaching. He puts the call on the speakerphone so my mother and sister can hear too. They have been inviting other friends and family over for the past three months. They have been listening to you preach. I'm just holding it up so they can hear your message about Jesus. Well, needless to say, uh, Pastor Nasser invited this woman the following week to sit on the front row. And on that particular Sunday, he was preaching about Jesus' love for the lost, his compassion for the lost. And at the end of the service when he called people to make a commitment to Christ, this woman began to cry in the middle of the service, my husband, my husband, my husband got saved. My mother, my sister, they want to come to the Lord too. Basic question. Why, were this, why was this family saved through a cell phone? Well, you could say, well, it's because they believed. And that is absolutely true. It is by grace we are saved through faith. And this not from ourselves. It's the gift of God. But at the more fundamental level, the reason this family was saved is because Jesus is the seeking shepherd. 
He came to seek and to save that was lost. And we saw that last time, didn't we? With the lost sheep. Jesus is the seeking shepherd. And every time God raises someone up to preach the gospel, we can rest assured that Jesus is on his search mission, his rescue mission. Indeed, the fact that you have the opportunity to hear the gospel today is evidence that the shepherd is coming to seek and to save that which is lost. Now we saw that last time in the situation that kind of frames the entire chapter. That situation is verse 1. The tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That was the situation. It was the situation in the first story. It's the situation today. Um, these tax collectors and these sinners had heard the high demands of, the, of discipleship and yet they were still drawn to Jesus. Why? Because he had deconstructed all the categories of what it means to be right with God. In fact, it's very likely that many of these sinners had rebelled against God because the legalist, the self-righteous people, had given them a bad impression of God. Uh, they had given him a, a bad representation of who God is. They had made God unattractive. And so they perhaps had rebelled against God as a result of this self-righteousness and this legalism. But here's a man who is showing them compassion, who is showing them mercy, who is coming to save them in spite of their sin. That was the situation. But behind that situation came the stress of the story, which frames the rest of the chapter. Verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Which is one of the clearest definitions of his ministry in the Bible coming from the mouths of those who despised him and hated him because indeed Jesus does receive sinners and eat with them. Now from one perspective it seems that because Jesus would have been closer in worldview to the Pharisees than the tax collectors and the sinners that uh, he would have been more on their side. He would have sided with them more given the fact that he had more in common with them with regard to the Hebrew Scriptures, with regard to his worldview, than he would have had with the, the Gentile sinners and the tax collectors. And in all actuality, he's not siding with any group, to be honest. The issue is whether they are siding with him. It reminds me of Joshua chapter 5. Joshua comes across the Jordan and he is encountered by this uh, divine being. And Joshua in his fear asks, are you with us? Are you with our adversaries? And this being looks at him and he says, no. Wasn't a yes no question, but that's the answer to his question. No, I am the commander of the Lord's army. In essence, what this being was saying, and I believe this to be a Christophany, a, a pre incarnate appearance of the Son of God, he was in essence saying, I did not come to take sides, I come to take over. I'm coming as Lord. You know, in the book, The Lord of the Rings, perhaps you've seen the movie that 
actually a trilogy, three hours, three movies, three hours long a piece. They should have made all of that into one movie, an hour and a half long. Uh, and there's Sylvester Stallone's not in it, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's not in it, so it's hard to be interested in these things. But my kids absolutely love The Lord of the Rings. But in the book, when the hobbits ask the ancient treebeard, who is 14 feet tall, whose side he's on, his response is interesting. I'm not altogether on anybody's side because nobody is altogether on my side. But there are some things, of course, whose side I'm altogether not on. And so Jesus' own answer to that question through this chapter would have been similar. He's on the side of neither the irreligious, that is the sinners and the tax collectors, nor is he side on the side of the religious. But he singles out religious moralism as particularly dangerous, particularly harmful. Because it's the very antithesis of humility and faith. As Christian is making his way into the celestial city, maybe you've read Pilgrim's Progress and he is, he's encountered by a worldly wise man who tells him to forsake the narrow way and just to look to religion, look to morality, look to civic duty. And the evangelist says, you don't need to listen to worldly wise man because he goes to church in the town of morality. And the reason he loves that church is because morality allows him to avoid the cross. And that's where these religious people were. Free grace is a scandal to the moralist. It's a scandal to the self-righteous. Because it's an all-out assault. Free grace is an all-out assault on moralism. It's not an all-out assault on morals. It's an all-out assault on moralism. It's an all-out assault on self-righteousness, not on righteousness. And that's why these Pharisees hated Jesus. And so in the first part of this three-part parable, notice in verse 3, he told them this parable. It's singular. So these three stories are a part of a parable. It's a three-part parable. And he tells them this three-part parable to defend why he is coming to dine and to commune with the sinners. And in the first part of this parable, we saw uh, a shepherd who finds his lost sheep. In the third part of this parable, we see a father, a compassionate father, who, who, who runs and embraces his son who has come home. But in between these two parables is a shorter but no less important story about a woman who finds her lost coin. And that brings us to the story, verses 8 to 10. Again, this is the second part of a three-part parable. Look in verse 8. He's speaking again to the Pharisees who are grumbling that he is dining and receiving sinners. So these parables are directed to them. What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until 
she finds it. The word coin there is drachma. It was uh, worth about one day's wage for the common laborer. Okay? So that's the coin that she's lost. And so to search for the coin is inevitable. Uh, the coin is valuable. Can you imagine losing a, a day's worth of work? Now, searching for this coin required lighting, uh, a lamp, because very few of the homes of that day had windows. It also required sweeping the house because the house floor was, was earthen. It was made of, of mud. It would have been dusty and, and dirty. And notice as well that she seeks diligently until uh, she finds it. Now this very short parable and teaches us three very important truths. Uh, three very important truths. The first truth is this. It reflects the heart of God. This parable is going to give us insights into the heart of God. In fact, many in the early church... Now, whether they were right or not, it'll still preach. Uh, many theologians in the early church believed this woman represents the Holy Spirit. Now, they, don't, they do not believe that the Holy Spirit is a woman. They do not believe that God is a gender. They don't believe that God is a woman or a man, though typically the scriptures uh, reflect masculine language of God. But the reason they believe this woman represents the Holy Spirit is because in the first story, the shepherd is obviously Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. In the third story, the compassionate father who receives the prodigal is obviously the first person of the Trinity. And so many believed that this second story here represents the Holy Spirit. In particular because he, uh, she lights a lamp so that the coin can be found. And of course, we know from Hebrews 6, 4 that, that that's the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to enlighten us. Our hearts are darkened. That's why we cannot behold the glory of God. But the Spirit enlightens our hearts to see and behold the glory of God and hence come to Him in repentance and faith. But regardless of whether this woman represents the Holy Spirit or not, it certainly shows us something of the heart of God. But secondly, this story teaches us how precious we are to God. Now, the Bible clearly teaches that we are sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins, alienated from the life of God, Colossians 1. But the Bible also teaches that we have nobility because we are created as the image of God. We are precious in God's sight as a result. We are the image of God. We bear his image. And so suffice to say this coin would have been extremely valuable to the woman. And the great value that she places on that coin shows the great value that God has for lost sinners. Okay? God has a compassionate heart for the lost. Indeed, as the lost coin was under the ownership of the woman, even when it was lost, we are under the ownership of God even when we are lost. He owns us because He created us. 
And so whether you acknowledge God as Lord or not does not mean that you're not accountable to Him. By virtue the fact that He created you, you are accountable to God. Which means if you do not return to Him in repentance and faith, there will be a day of reckoning. In fact, there are two Old Testament letters that are entirely devoted to the pagan nations. Nations that do not acknowledge Yahweh, the true and living God. Nahum. An entire book, Nahum, is devoted to the judgment on the Assyrians because they will not bow the knee to Yahweh. Obadiah is another book that's devoted to the Edomites who will not recognize Yahweh as Lord. And remember when Moses is sent to Pharaoh through Aaron, he says, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Now Pharaoh does not acknowledge the living God, but he's accountable to the living God. The living God has authority over him because he created Pharaoh. Okay? And so... The Bible here teaches us that we are accountable to him whether we recognize it or not. And we are valuable to him as well. And so when we return to him in repentance and faith, God is getting back his own. Okay? Well, the third, I guess, say you could say valuable lesson of this parable um, is just as important. And it's this. Until God finds us, we are helplessly lost. You hear me? You're not born found. You're not born saved. We are sinners by birth. We are sinners by choice. You don't have to teach your children to tell a lie. You have to teach them to tell the truth. Lying comes much more easily for a child. Okay? And we don't really change after that until we are converted. Until we are found, we are lost. That's a very important point. Indeed, we saw this with the lost sheep, and we're going to see it with the prodigal son as well. And what's interesting is that each one of these three lost entities are lost in a different way. And I think what you have is a composite picture of what it means to be lost as a result. For the sheep, he's just wandering off. He doesn't think he's in rebellion. He's just acting according to his nature. He's just being a sheep. Why is the sheep wandering? Because he has sheepishness. He's just sheepish. He's just filled with a sheep nature. And that's what sheep do. They're stupid. They're foolish. They're following their whims, okay? oblivious to danger. It just feels right. It, it just feels right. You ever heard teenagers say that? It just feels right. Or perhaps someone who, who exposes themselves to illicit information on the internet. It just, it just feels right. It's like a sheep, just oblivious to danger. Proverbs 14 tells us there's a way that seems right unto man feels right. It just, it's natural. There's a way that seems right unto man, but the way therein is to death. So what does that mean? Until God's wisdom, God's word 
begins to direct me and govern my life, I'm going to be directed and governed by my, my nature, which is fallen. Which will inevitably lead us away from God further and further. And so the sheep just kind of simply wandered, okay? Not just uh, overt rebellion, just being a sheep. That's one aspect of our lostness. Next time, we're going to see with the prodigal, there is a sense in which we utterly rebel. We do not want anything to do with the Father. We want nothing to do with His authority in our lives. We outright rebel. That's another aspect of our lostness. And so the sheep just is acting according to his nature. The prodigal is just an outright rebellion to the Father. But here you have the coin. The coin is just lost through difficult providence. Maybe the coin rolled off the table. Or maybe the coin just slipped through the woman's hands. But it's just through difficult and tough providence that the coin is lost. Of course, this isn't the whole story, is it? We have the, the sheep story and the prodigal story to tell us that that is a composite picture of what it means to be lost. But it's part of the story. There are some of you who are not believers today because you were raised in homes where the gospel was never spoken of. Perhaps there wasn't even a Bible in your home. You were raised in homes where, there, where you were never brought to church. In fact, I remember last year at, uh, at Upward, one of the young boys, we were sitting in here on the celebration day and he grabbed a pew Bible and he asked me, he said, what is this? He'd never seen a Bible. Or perhaps some of you were raised in abusive homes. Just very violent, difficult circumstances. Or maybe you were raised in hyper-legalistic homes. Uh, your parents were supposedly Mr. and Mrs. Christian, but there was no relationship there with God. It was just rules and regulations. It was harsh. Uh, perhaps you are here and you are in some ways a product of tough providence. But whatever happened, the reality is until we are found, we are lost. Okay? Until we are found by God, the Savior, we are lost. And so though we have this intrinsic worth because we're the image of God, like that coin, we're utterly useless to God until we're found. We're like in Luke 14, the salt that loses its saltiness. We're like in Luke 13, the, the fig tree that no longer bears fruit. Why were we created? We weren't created so you can move up the corporate ladder and make a name for yourself. We weren't created so you can accrue a huge portfolio. We were created for one reason, to hallow the name of God. And until we are found, instead of hallowing His name, we hallow ours. There's no praise, there's no worship, there's no service. As Richard Phillips asserts, sinners lie unused and unseen no longer contributing the value for which they were fashioned. 
while God's image with which they were stamped is increasingly tarnished and covered with the dust of sinful living. Do you identify with that? You say, well, you're picking on me. The fact is that was all of us. That was every single one of us at one time. Every Christian in this room had to come to recognize at some time in their life that they were a lost coin. They were a wandering sheep and they needed to be saved. Do you identify with this? What makes this situation so helpless is that the coin cannot find itself. You realize that? The coin cannot find itself. The parable demonstrates our dependency on the searching God. As Michael Wilcock in his commentary writes, the coin is lifeless. It cannot move. It can, it can certainly not find its own way back like the son, referring to the prodigal. It cannot even bleat for help like the sheep. Again, this is a composite picture of what it means to be lost. Of course, in some senses, lost mankind is not like the silver coin, inanimate. But spiritually, from the point of view of the spirit, it is lifeless. And the coin is an apt symbol of those who see the requirements of God and know themselves incapable of rising to them. Only the all-powerful spirit can rescue men who, in that sense, are lost. And so it's a helpless situation. But it's not a hopeless situation because the woman represents the God who diligently, diligently searches for the lost. And even now he's searching. He's searching this morning. You realize that? He's always searching. And indeed he is searching because he is a God whose steadfast love extends to the heavens. And that's not just regular love, that's steadfast love, that's covenantal love, that's saving love, that's effectual love. Indeed, we see something of this steadfast love in his response when the coin is found. Notice in verse 9. And when she had found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me! I have found the coin that I had lost. Of course, this rehearses the response of the shepherd when he finds the sheep in verse 6. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And it also foreshadows the father's response when the prodigal comes home. Back over, or over in verses 22 to 24. The father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on and put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And he began to celebrate. This chapter, as much as any takes us up into the heavenlies and gives us a glimpse into the heart of God for lost sinners. And it's easy to be bored with this text because you're so familiar with it. But try to look at this text through new eyes. Why does he rejoice? Why does this woman who represents God rejoice? Because salvation is a five-fold salvation. First of all, salvation means we are saved from our sin. 
We're saved from the very thing that destroys our lives. Salvation means we are saved from our sin. Secondly, it means that we are saved from the devil. John 10 says the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. And when Jesus takes away our guilt on sin, the devil's throne is undermined in our lives. We are saved from the devil. Thirdly, we are saved from hell. We are saved from hell. Do you realize whether you like it or not, and I don't like it, but it's true, hell is eternal. And it's a conscious torment. You say, you sound like one of those uh, fire-breathing fundamentalists. Well, that's what Jesus said. Hell is a place where the worm never dies. Jesus saves us from hell. But here's one that perhaps you haven't thought about before. This is the fourth aspect of our salvation. When we're saved, we're saved from God. You say, that sounds harsh. It's not harsh at all. It's true. We're saved from the wrath of God. That's our biggest problem. Is God's wrath on sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Romans 1. We're saved from the wrath of God when we're saved. But here, fifthly, is perhaps the most glorious reason that God rejoices when we're saved. We're saved from God, but we're saved for God. Do you realize that? And so salvation is salvation from these terrible things. But for a God who loves us, who has poured out his compassion upon us. One person who can testify to this searching God is the famous author, American author, Anne Lamott. Her language is provocative, but it's, I think, very telling. She speaks of her testimony. She says, Jesus was relentless. I didn't experience him so much as the hound of heaven, but as the old description has it, as the alley cat of heaven, who seemed to believe that if it just keeps showing up and meddling outside your door, you'd eventually open up and give him a bowl of milk. I resisted as long as I could, like Sam I am in Green Eggs and Ham. He wore me out. He won. I was tired and vulnerable. And he won. Then when I was dozing, tiny kitten that I was, he picked me up like a mother cat. And by the scruff of my neck and deposited me in a little church. That's where I was when I came to. And then I came to believe. Why? Because he's a searching God. He's a saving God. And maybe that's you here this morning. You've tried to silence the voice. You've tried to. But it just gets louder. You've, you've, you've sought to avoid his persistent search. But here you are on a Sunday morning hearing about the saving God, the searching God. You cannot get away from him. And maybe you're thinking, if I give my life to Christ, 
If I submit to Him, true life is over. True life is over. If you think that, then you know something or you think you know something that the angels themselves don't know. Look with me in verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, this statement is the same reality in different words as verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Here again, Jesus is pulling back the veil and allowing us to peer into the heavenlies so that we can see what happens in heaven when sinners are saved. And this involves the angels' joy. The joy of the angels, but also the joy of the angels in beholding the glory and the joy of God. You know, it reminds me of Ephesians 3.10, which may be the most underrated verse in the Bible. It's one of them. It's the top ten. In Ephesians 3.10, Paul says that one of the purposes of the redeemed people of God, the church, is to display God's glory to the angels. We're on display to the angels. In Ephesians 3.10, he says, His intent, that is God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Do you get that? We're on display. And so as the angels, by the way, Hebrews says we're made lower than the angels. We're constitutionally inferior to the angels. Now we're the image of God. Angels are not the image of God. But in one sense, we are inferior to the angels. When angels behold a sinner who hates God, who is alienated from God, who's living according to his own devices or her devices, when this angel beholds this sinner turning from his or her sin to worship the true and living God, they're astounded at the wisdom of God. They're astounded at the glory of God. And they rejoice. Here's what Peter has to say about that. Speaking of this salvation in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 12. Peter says these are things in which angels long to look. Now you think about that. What things? Salvation. Here you have these angels who are incredibly majestic beings who live in God's eternal presence, beholding His glory 24-7. And yet there is something that is happening on earth that is so stupendous that even these majestic beings long to look into them. It's God's glory in the salvation of sinners. And they rejoice. And it says God delights in this. And the angels delight in this. The two beings who are constitutionally superior to us. We see here in the heavenlies what they are delighting in. And you say, well, if I give my life to Christ, life as I know it is over. Yes, but a much richer life is before you. 
Because the very thing that causes God to rejoice is now yours. Now think about it. If rejoicing in the salvation of sinners, and in my personal salvation, if that's what causes God to delight and rejoice, shouldn't that inform where we find our delight? I think God knows more than we do. I think He does. I think the angels know more than we do. Could it be that you are joyless this morning? Could it be that you're going through the motions as a believer because you have sought to find your delight and joy in something that God does not find? His delight and His joy? He made you for Himself. So if you live in a manner that is in opposition to which He made you, it stands to reason you will malfunction. It stands to reason you will not find what you're looking for. Yes, Luke, this, this chapter, this text uh, is one of the glorious texts. Now, you know, as it occurred to me this week, as I've been reflecting on this chapter, this is one of the most basic chapters in the entire Bible. Some of the simplest stories Jesus ever told are found in Luke 15. Some of the simplest stories in the Bible are found in chapter 15 and it's easy to become kind of inoculated by it. Bored with it because you're so familiar with it. But this text communicates some of the deepest theological truths in the entire Bible because they invite us into the heart of God. They invite us into the heart of God. And of course we know that the way the sheep, the lost sheep is going to be found. And we know the way that the coin is going to be found requires us to look at the end of Luke. The entire book is taking us to the end where Jesus the shepherd, Jesus the searching Savior will go to a cross and he'll take the judgment that we deserve because of our sin, because God is holy and just. He'll take that judgment in our place so that we can be found. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel, which is a message for Christians and those who are not yet Christians. For those of you who are Christians, why does this passage matter to you? Sometimes we think the gospel doesn't belong to a Christian. Uh, the gospel is for the unbeliever and the deeper truths are for the believer. No, the gospel is not the ABCs, it's the A to Z. Why does this passage matter to you? Because the Holy Spirit wants you to love God more. He wants to nourish and strengthen your faith, hope, and love. And the way He does that is by exposing you to abounding grace, abounding mercy, steadfast love. But there's also another reason why this text matters to the believer. God wants you to understand his heart for sinners. He wants you to understand his compassion for sinners. You see, his heart is our mission. If that's where his heart is, it stands to reason that's where our mission is. 
You know this question is coming. But it's not a cliche question. It's a fundamental question. What part are you contributing to the mission of God? In his quest to save lost coins. In his quest to save wandering sheep. If you're not playing a role in what God rejoices in, I say this lovingly. You don't have the heart of God. You don't have the heart of God. No matter what you profess and confess, if you're not playing a role in what God is doing to save lost coins, to save straying sheep, you don't have the heart of God. Do you have a prayer list? that has more than just physical needs on it? Do you have a prayer list for lost people? I'm not just talking about your immediate family. I'm talking about your neighbors, your co-workers, the people you work out at the gym with, the people you play golf with, the people you hunt with. Do you have a prayer list that you are pleading every day before God for their salvation? Are you engaging people with the, the gospel? You go, I don't know how to approach people. I love the way... Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in Dallas, Texas, was confronted with the gospel when he was lost. A man came up to him and says, I want to tell you about Jesus. When do you want me to do it? There's no getting out of that. I mean, there's really no open-ended answer there, is it? You've got to answer, well, uh, I guess we could do it next week. And then when that door is open, what do you do? You tell him about the seeking shepherd who came to seek and to save that which is lost. It's that simple. You tell him that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners such as I. That God is holy and he must judge sin and he judged this sin in his son so that sinners like us could be saved. That's all you have to tell them. But you must repent and you must believe in his work. Pastor Sam Nasser would tell you the gospel is powerful so we don't have to be powerful. We don't have to be eloquent. We don't have to be educated. We don't have to be articulate. We don't have to be bold. The gospel is bold. The gospel is powerful. He even saves through cell phone connections. Just give them the gospel and watch God save the sheep. Watch God save the coins. So this passage is for the believer. But it's also for the unbeliever. There are some here today who have never trusted Christ. I absolutely believe that. I'm not judging you. We've all been there. This gospel is for you. He has come to save you. He's come to seek the lost. But as the prodigal son story is going to tell us, you must repent of your sins. You must trust in Christ. And the Bible says every sin you've ever committed or presently committing or will ever commit will be covered by His blood and His righteousness. But you must repent and believe. Why don't you do that today and be saved? Let's pray. Father God, thank You that You're a seeking God, a saving God. If You weren't, there would be nobody here today. 
Maybe it would be just the church of the morality and legality and civics. But there will be no true worshipers here today if you weren't a seeking God. For those who have been found, pray today, strengthened their faith, hope, and love. Nourished it. For those who haven't, may today be the day they submit to the shepherd, the seeking God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.